Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can lock my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles. But we still here, in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. Show. They got me started, lying hearted. I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth a crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. That 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can lock my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, kid, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up, up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous service unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. 
there's visual evidence, there's evidence all over the place about what has occurred, what has happened to us, the atrocities that has happened to our people. We already know. This has been a long time coming. This is deserving. You are deserving of this. We've already paid. Our ancestors paved the way for us. And it's hard for black folk here to believe it. This has been a fight for over 500 years. It's time. The time is now. America must atone for what is taking place to our ancestors. And they're here for that atonement. This is our country. This is our land. To restore our dignity back is a beautiful thing. We're pushing for reparations across the country. That's my main reason for being here. In health care, we need help. In education, we need help. We need to address housing. And we also need financial financial compensation. I don't believe that it is totally African Americans' fault that they are poor. This was set in place from years ago. And we were brought here as slaves. We have purposely been kept away from money. We've purposely been kept away from the American dream. This is the process that you have to go through in order to get where you're going. And thank God we're finally doing it. Land is the most important because if we spend the money off, what, what, we ain't got no land? No, we need land. It's about the voiceless and it's about our future. You know, our future with our kids, you know. So when we leave here, we just gonna make sure that we did something. Now, not everyone approves of this. Critics say that the plan is impractical. Some even say that California was not a slave state, so why should California taxpayers pay the price? But of the dozens of people that called to weigh in on the meeting today, one person voiced opposition. We have developed an entitlement mentality, and never has it been put on display more than with this disgraceful reparations board. The task force is still trying to determine some things like definitions, uh, things that like who should be considered a California resident to get reparations and how long should they have lived in California. And the task force, they are meeting again tomorrow and they have until July 1st to make that final decision. The task force will then make recommendations to the legislature. And again, if you want to weigh on this, that QR code is on your screen. You can scan it. Let us know your thoughts. And we look forward to hearing what you think about all this. All right, now to our next story. Tonight, for the first time, we are hearing from Sacramento County, the Sheriff's Department, and former Sheriff Scott Jones after they were named in a lawsuit saying that they violated a man's civil rights. We're talking about Sharano Stingley. He died in the hospital after Sacramento County Sheriff's deputies arrested him and left him unconscious in December. The Sheriff's Office says that they were responding to a report of a man under someone's truck in Sacramento County. Singley's family says that he was in the middle of a mental health crisis and was searching for his daughter's home who lives in that same neighborhood. In this video, it shows Singley initially complying with deputies, but then a struggle ensued. By the fourth minute, Singley appears unconscious. And we really have been following this story from the very beginning. Uh, four months later, there still is an official cause of death, and we've only seen the angle of one body camera. So I want to go ahead and bring in Devin Truby here, who's also been following the latest on this case. Well, Alex, the family filed this lawsuit all the way back in February. We are just now hearing about these violations. They, you know, they filed for civil rights violations, federal violations. And what we found out today when we looked over all those documents is that the county, sheriff's department, and former Sheriff Jones, they want all of that dismissed. 
I want all of the body camera footage to be released. I want the 911 call to be released. I want the officers to be held accountable. On the day the county responded to the Sharano Stingley lawsuit, his daughter Diamond addressed the Sacramento County Board of Supervisors, who did not respond to her request to talk about the case. Is that an agenda? Okay, I'm going to take a, uh, I'm going to take, I'm going to resource, recess the meeting right now. We will stand in recess. The meeting being called into recess. We met with Mark Marin, the attorney representing the Stingley family, for his thoughts on the county calling to dismiss. He said this is the typical response of the sheriff's office under Scott Jones. They were acting pursuant to the policy, practice, uh, and custom that Sheriff Jones had perpetuated. And the county's response to the lawsuit, they want to dismiss the violations of civil and constitutional rights against former Sheriff Jones. They say it's redundant because the county and sheriff's department are named. The documents also state that the lawsuit fails to identify a specific training practice by the sheriff's department. They permit uh, in confined spaces, they, they permit control holds, they permit uh, having a knee on the back, the neck, and the head, which, which should have been reversed and revised years ago. The response also says they failed to show intentional discrimination to the family's claim of Stingley's mental health disability. They observed somebody who was clearly mentally ill. Recognizing that someone's mentally ill means you, you should have to accommodate that condition, which means you back off, you act more slowly. The county's points conclude on any reference to George Floyd for this case is irrelevant. The awareness of the need to respect people's bodily integrity and to, and to stop putting pressure on their airways should have been clear to the sheriff long before. That's why we compare it to uh, George Floyd. So, Alex, the Stingley family has 30 days to respond to this, and they plan to. Then it'll all go to court, and a judge will decide if this whole lawsuit gets dismissed or not. A court appearance already set and scheduled for May 4th. And then the law firm representing the county, we did reach out to them to hear their side as well, but we did not hear back. And this all happened back in December, but we still don't have a cause of death. We still don't ha we only have that one body camera angle as well. Can you give some clarity or insight as to why this is taking so long? Yeah, I spoke with the county coroner today and they said this remains an open case. So they are waiting on a toxicology report before they decide to determine that cause of death. And they said, quote, cases with toxicology and or ancillary tests ordered by the forensic pathologist usually take six to nine months to close. The decedent died three months ago. There was no unusual delay. But we checked in with the crime lab for Sacramento County, and they mm -hmm. quoted us that a toxicology test on average takes about 41 days. So a little discrepancy there. Yeah, and I do want to talk about the deputies for a second because are they still working? Do we have an update on them while this whole investigation is going on? I spoke to the Sacramento County Sheriff today, mm -hmm. and while we still do not know who these deputies are that were involved, we do know that all of them are working actively within their assignments and that there was never a period of leave for any of them. All right, thank you so much, Devin. We appreciate it. All right, after the break, a life-saving drug now available without a prescription. How making Narcan more accessible can be a game-changer against opioids. Young people and kids across our country and right here in Northern California are being killed by accidental fentanyl poisoning. Like 17-year-old Zach Didier, he went to Whitney High School in Rockland. He died after taking a counterfeit pill laced with fentanyl. And 20-year-old Talia Newman, she had the same fate after an accidental fentanyl poisoning late last year. 
Something that could have saved their lives is Narcan. And if you haven't heard of it, it's a drug that reverses opioid overdoses. And today the FDA approved the sale of Narcan over the counter. And some of our communities that have been ahead of this movement, they are like the Sacramento City Unified Campuses. They made Narcan available. Staff are actually trained to use it in case of student overdoses at school. And bills have even been proposed in the state legislature to require all public schools to carry Narcan. We spoke to a pharmacist today who's told us, quote, easy access to this allows community members who purchase them to make good decisions for themselves. And tomorrow, I'm speaking with a mother who lost her child to a fentanyl overdose. Their teenager bought Percocet unknowingly laced with fentanyl. So we will have that story right here tomorrow on To The Point. All right, coming up after the break, there is still a chance the Kings have a way to the playoffs if they win in Portland tonight. So we're there with a live look at all the excitement. All right, we just can't talk about it enough. The Kings have another chance to make it to the playoffs. And when you – sorry, I'm <laughs> It's been a long day. It's been a long day. Hopefully they make it if they beat the Portland Trailblazers tonight. Kevin John is on the ground in Portland to give us a look at all the action. Yes, I'm here inside a Moda Center where the Sacramento Kings are less than 30 minutes away from potentially breaking the longest playoff drought in the NBA. If you're counting, it's 16 seasons, especially for you Kings fans. It's been 16 long seasons in 17 years. But tonight, the Kings can officially clinch a playoff berth and clinch home court advantage throughout the playoffs with a win tonight. Now, here's the good news. If the Kings lose tonight, they still have an opportunity to get into the playoffs. They would need the Timberwolves or the Clippers to lose tonight. But one thing is for sure. There are a lot of fans from Sacramento who made the trip out here to Portland for this game. I'm sure you guys will probably hear them all the way from Sacramento as well. And, of course, we will have a full recap of this game coming up at 11 o'clock right here on ABC10. Man, I wish I was in Portland tonight. All right. And it's King's Fever back home. We have uh, Lights of Beer Beam. We have Lights of Beam Coffee. We have Beam Shirts. We have everything Beam that you could ever possibly think of. And ABC10's Luke Cleary is live in downtown Sacramento. Luke? I want to see the beam lit tonight, don't you? Oh, yeah. Everybody here, I think, would love to see the Kings win tonight. A lot of excitement as fans begin to trickle in here. We're at Punchbowl Social, one of many places in Doko where people can catch the game, where they've got ice-cold beer on tap and big TVs where people will be able to watch their Kings play. We also just so happen to be steps away from the Golden One Center, where... Unfortunately, on Monday, the Kings just were not able to seal the deal. They fell to the Timberwolves. And, you know, what we're kind of seeing outside, this dreary, rainy sort of weather is, I don't know, uh, maybe kind of uh, appropriate for the failure to just kind of get that storybook ending at, in front of a home crowd. But again, they can do it tonight. This is a great vantage point where... We'll actually be able to see the beam get lit up. And uh, I tell you, Devin Truby told me uh, that she actually spoke with some of the laser engineers. They've got something really special in store in case the Kings do pull it off and clinch that playoff berth and snap that playoff drought, Alex. Oh, they will. We already know that they will. All right, thanks, Luke. 
and we are here to help you get answers and hear all of your points. We want to know what questions you have about the Kings. We will get them answered by our Kings experts, Matt George and Kevin John. You can just scan the QR code or text us at 916-321-3310. All right, guess what? More snow in the Sierra today. Sorry, Monica, this is a never-ending story. And it's really causing a lot of pain for the people that are trying to make their way through I-80 at places like Dutch Flat. It just seems like it's never-ending, Monica. Certainly, and we still have that winter storm warning in effect until 8 o'clock for tonight, so additional snow coming our way. As far as our radar, you can see the big push of moisture moving its way eastward. But in that, we saw numerous thunderstorms earlier today, and that's all associated with a low-pressure system, that counterclockwise circulation, still very evident right along the coast as it slides its way towards Southern California. One to four inches of additional snow still falling this afternoon and into tonight up to about 12 inches at the peaks with travel highly discouraged in the Sierra. As far as our 24-hour totals, coming in close to about 15 to 20 inches of snow. But the season total is closer to about 670 to 800 inches of snow. So some places actually reaching some record snowfall at this point. Our total rainfall is at 25.65 inches for downtown Sacramento. And that is more than the combined last two years of rainfall, helping us to dig and chip away at that drought that has been so persistent over the past three years. As far as total rain for today, Sacramento monitoring site is down. So currently we're still tracking about a quarter of an inch to almost an inch of rain in the valley and the foothills. And for our highs, it's been chilly. 50s for highs today in the valley, 40s for the foothills and close to 30 for this year. Tomorrow, not much change in our temperatures. We're still going to stay in the 50s, which is about 10 to almost 15 degrees below average, but we are going to dry out from some of that rain. Patchy fog to start us off tomorrow morning. That's what we'll encounter for the morning commute, but then that low starts to move its way eastward. Now, we will still see a slight chance of some snow flurries for tomorrow, but Friday, a great day. Saturday into Sunday, we'll track this low to the north of us, and that is going to provide us with at least a chance of snow flurries for Saturday and Sunday and a slight chance of a light sprinkle for the valley. Highs tomorrow in the Sierra in the 30s as we move our way down the hill. We're in the 40s and 50s, a little bit warmer than today, but still well below average. 50s and 60s along the coast heading into our Thursday forecast, and we're in the 50s and 60s throughout the valley. Again, patchy morning fog, especially for the morning commute, and then a mix of sun and clouds for the afternoon. Five-day forecast, a few flurries in there for Saturday and Sunday. Monday, more snow showers expected. For the foothills, rain expected on Sunday into Monday. Highs will be staying in the 40s and 50s, and along the coast, breezy next Monday, but overall, travel not too bad along the coast over the weekend. I know some folks are starting off their spring break this weekend, and it looks like it's going to be a rainy one into next week. <laughs> At least a chance of showers. But Alex, okay, 70 for that's the following weekend. You see that? Yeah, that's not bad. That's a highlight. I like it. There Monica. you I'll go. Take it. <laughs> All right, a story we first brought you last summer onto the point. The city of Sacramento approved part of its American Rescue Plan funding to go towards revitalizing the Northgate Corridor, and it's a heavily traveled area in North Sacramento. So $5 million is being spent on infrastructure to improve traffic, lighting, and businesses. And now, small businesses in the area, they can apply for one-time grants. The Gardenland Northgate Neighborhood Association tells us some businesses they spoke to are behind on their rent, and this money, I mean, it could really help. So a lot of them are family-owned, small businesses, maybe have one employee, and they're still recovering. 20 businesses will be picked to receive $2,500 one-time grants. 
The application deadline is this Friday. We have more information on abc10.com slash to the point. Today is National Vietnam War Veterans Day, and it's a day meant to pay tribute to Vietnam uh, veterans of the Vietnam War, including those who were prisoners of war or who were listed missing in action. And you can honor the more than 3 million Americans who served in the U.S. Armed Forces in the Vietnam War. This is the wall that heals, which is being set up in Roush Park in Citrus Heights. It will be there tomorrow through Sunday. It's a three-quarter scale replica of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Along with the wall will be a mobile education center, which will have digital photo displays of hometown heroes. And those are service members whose names are on that wall listed with, uh, within the Sacramento area. And Travis Air Force Base is also holding events in honor of those who served. One of the first groups of American POWs that left Vietnamese prison camps arrived at Travis Air Force Base more than 50 years ago, back in March of 1970. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared debate on the motion that the West should pay reparations for slavery. The issue of reparations has gathered momentum and a renewed sense of urgency in recent years. In America, you'll probably get a better response to it than if you try to make it an all-or-nothing thing, particularly at this point in time when tensions are so high. Uh, and we know what the movement and tensions have been. Um, the governorship in uh, Virginia essentially was a shocker. And what was it about? It was about educational takeover on the one hand. And some of it was surely about what people thought to be the excesses of all the 1619 projects. Black Power Brothers and Sisters, uh, oh my God, oh my God, our apologies, our apologies. We had a, a very major glitch in the audio. Um, the wrong clip uh, was loaded up and started. Uh, we didn't catch it on time. We do apologize. So we're going to go ahead and play uh, a, a clip here uh, that's more <laughs> conducive to what this broadcast is about. Uh, you know, tell no lies, claim no easy victories. That clip that was playing just a moment ago uh, was not supposed to be the clip we're playing. We are continuing our our nightly uh, blitz of all things reparations, all things reparations. So we're going to keep keep the track rolling. Uh, so let's go. Next power. Good afternoon and welcome to the Program for Public Discourse Debating Public Policy Series. I'm Kevin Marinelli, Executive Director of the program. The Program for Public Discourse strives to promote democratic values by fostering robust discursive practices in the classroom, across Carolina, and beyond. And we do that first by engaging issues that are tough and socially significant, and second, by transcending the simplistic either or binary of politics to ask questions that are more nuanced more complex, and frankly, more interesting. And today is no exception as we engage the issue of reparations. The concept of reparation appears to be a universal one and often hotly contested. Perhaps the most prominent example of reparations on a large scale are those paid out to victims of the Holocaust in Germany still today. Most recently, there's been talk about paying victims of uh, global climate change reparations 
in the, in the developing world as these people suffer the greatest consequences and contribute least to global climate change. In the context of the United States, uh, discussions around reparations uh, focus specifically on the legacy of American slavery. Historically, discussions around reparations have entered and then receded from the mainstream of public discourse. However, in 2014, there was a provocative essay written by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which appeared in The Atlantic, which regalvanized momentum around reparations, which was then sustained by the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement, which continues still today. So today, we're going to take a deeper dive into the discussion of reparations in the American context with three leading scholars on the topic. Our first panelist, William Darity Jr., affectionately known as Sandy, is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies, and Economics, and the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social oh, Equity at, at Duke University. He has served as chair of the Department of African and African American Studies and was the founding director of the Research Network on Racial and Ethnic Inequality at Duke. Previously, he served as director of the Institute of African American Research, director of the Moore Undergraduate Research Apprenticeship Program, director of the <laughs> Undergraduate Honors Program in Economics, and director of graduate studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Randall Kennedy is Michael R. Klein Professor at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on contracts, criminal law, and the regulation of race relations. He was born in Columbia, South Carolina. For his education, he attended St. Albans School, Princeton University, Oxford University, and Yale Law School. He served as law clerk for Judge J. Skelly Wright of the United States Court of Appeals and for Justice Thurgood Marshall of the United States Supreme Court. He is a member of the Bar of the District of Columbia and the Supreme Court of the United States. And our discussion today is going to be moderated by our own Usamudia James, who joined the UNC School of Law faculty in 2021. Her writing and teaching interests include education law, race in the law, administrative law, and torts. James is the author of numerous articles, book chapters, and popular press commentary exploring the interaction of law and identity in the context of public education. Her work has appeared in NYU Law Review, the Michigan Law Review, and the Minnesota Law Review, among others, as well as in the pages of the New York Times and Washington Post. And I should also add that uh, Sandy Darity has recently published a book, which the PPD has secured copies of and will distribute at our upcoming event in the spring on affirmative action. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to hand it over to our panelists for today. Thanks so much, uh, Kevin, and welcome to all our participants, whether you are joining us from far away or from someplace here on campus, we're delighted to have you. I'm also delighted to have our two discussions with us today. Hello, Professor Kennedy. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. Hello, Professor Darity. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So I want to start off with a definition. I want to jump right in. Um, and the word reparations is related to the word repair, right? Both come from the Latin word meaning to restore. And so our conversation today is really about the viability of reparations as a way to repair racial inequality in the United States, or maybe even restore it to what it might have been if racial subordination was not so central to sort of early development and founding of the United States. And so trying to get us all on the same page, Let's start talking about what reparations might be for. Right? I've already made a reference back to um, enslavement in the United States. What would reparations be for? Professor Darity, I'll start with you. 
Well, let me start by attempting to define reparations. Uh, the definition that Kirsten Mullen and I use in our book, From Here to Equality, is uh, reparations as a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for a grievous injustice. So this would be a general definition that would be applicable to any instance in which there is some sort of compensatory action that needs to be taken for an atrocity or for a series of atrocities. And by acknowledgement, we mean that the culpable party admits that it has committed such a grievous injustice and simultaneously makes a commitment to engage in an act of restitution for those atrocities. The second component, redress, is the actual act of comp compensation, usually taking the form when we're concerned about victimized communities, usually taking the form of some type of monetary payment, whether it's uh, the uh, payments that were made to victims of the Holocaust that were previously mentioned by Professor Marinelli, or in the U.S. case, payments that were made to Japanese Americans who were subjected to unlawful and unjust mass incarceration during the course of World War II. And then the, the, the third component of reparations and under our definition is closure, which is the point at which the uh, culpable party and the victimized community come to an agreement that the account has been settled. And uh, at that point, the victimized community will make no further claims for restitution on the, uh, uh, from, from the culpable party unless there is a renewal of the atrocities or there's a new wave of atrocities that takes place directed against them. So in the United States, what might we see? Let's say we were making reparations. To what would reparations be responding? Well, there's a host of atrocities that have been committed by the United States to which reparations could be responding. But I think in our conversation today, I, obviously our primary concern is about reparations for African-Americans. And uh, from that standpoint, uh, reparations would be something that would be enacted for the purposes of addressing the full array of atrocities that have been directed against black Americans from slavery into the present moment. So this would include uh, the period of legal segregation in the United States, which was, uh, was, which was accompanied by a wave of upwards of 100 massacres that took place all across the country. In the year 1919 alone, there were about 35 of these massacres that took place where white terrorists not only murdered black Americans, but also seized and appropriated their personal property. Uh, and then uh, in the post-civil uh, rights period, we have ongoing mass incarceration. We have, uh, uh, we have police executions of unarmed blacks. We have ongoing discrimination in housing, credit, and employment markets. And most significant from the standpoint of the project for reparations that I envision is uh, the, the persistence of a massive racial wealth gap, which constitutes the, uh, the best cumulative indicator, cumulative economic indicator of the intergenerational consequences of white supremacy in the United States. And so from my perspective, the, the, the minimum condition for a reparations program for black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved here is a project that would eliminate the racial wealth gap, 
which would require an expenditure of at least $14 trillion. Okay. So I want to talk about time as a key site of contestation when we're thinking about uh, reparations. Um, Yuvar Joshi, he's a faculty member at Allard, talks about how Americans think about the past. Uh, his argument is that whites think about the past as past, right? So maybe Black Americans think about the past as constituting the present. And those are different lenses for thinking about how far back reparations might go. Professor Kennedy, do you have thoughts about the timeline, right, that we've already invoked in terms of what reparations would be responsive to? Well, well I'm, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Did, I'm sorry. I thought I thought the question was asked to me. Am I incorrect? No, I, I, for I, it. I, that, that's fine. I, I, <laughs> either Professor Kennedy or Professor Barry, whoever wants to. Well, speak well let me defer. Let me defer to, to Professor Kennedy. Go ahead, because he hasn't had a chance to speak yet. No, I I, I'm, I, I was simply going to say that um, uh, in terms of setting a, a you know groundwork for our discussion, I'm I'm happy that in the definition, um, segregation has been mentioned a number of times. Oftentimes when we think about, uh, you know, the reparations discussion, slavery bulks very large, and obviously it, 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 it probably should and it can. Um, I think, though, that sometimes it's useful to think about the age of segregation because the age of segregation does, um, you know, it's 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 more recent. It's part it's part of living history. Oftentimes, we think about reparations and slavery. People say, well, yeah, but you know, there are no more slaves. The slaves are dead. The slaveholders are dead. Uh, that's you know, long, long, long ago. As if this was a time when the dinosaur roamed. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is there are millions and millions and millions of people who are alive who have been touched by the segregation regime. And um, I think that by talking about segregation, Boris Bicker in his book, wonderful book, you know, The Case for Black Reparations, made a point of urging a focus on segregation to get out, to, to make people think about the you know the 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 um how present the history of uh racial oppression has been it's not long long ago with people who were dead nope it's people who are alive with us uh, you know our our parents our siblings the segregation regime is something that is part of um, our, you know, our, our living memory. That's the only point that I'd like to make. Professor Darity, go, go, go right ahead. No, I, I think, I think we're in agreement here. Uh, I, I was going to say that the same people who say that slavery happened so long ago are frequently the same people who walk around with the trappings in the Confederacy. Uh, so, uh, there's some inconsistency in terms of their view about what is past and what is not past. Uh, but I think that the important point that, that uh, Professor Kennedy is making is that it's the post-slavery period that needs to be something that is drawn fully into the picture for the case for reparations. And I would argue that it's federal policies that took place in the aftermath of slavery that have maintained and perpetuated this enormous racial wealth gap. 
uh, I would start with the uh, the point at which the formerly enslaved were promised 40-acre land grants as restitution for their years of bondage, uh, land that they never received, while one and a half million white American families received 160-acre land grants in the Western territories under the Homestead Act uh, as the nation completed its colonial settler project in, in the Western territories. Um, and uh, Trina Shanks-Williams estimates now that there are 45 million living white Americans who continue to be beneficiaries of the Homestead Act land patents. Um, in addition, as I mentioned, there were upward of 100 massacres that took place across the nation conducted by white terrorists where they seized and appropriated Black-owned property. That was another mechanism for deepening the Black-white wealth gap. And then in the 20th century, the federal government shifts away from land distribution as its means of asset building to home ownership and the promotion of home ownership. And it does this in a highly discriminatory fashion. We can start with the presence of restrictive covenants that are supplanted by a federal policy of redlining, which was a public-private partnership between the Federal Housing Administration and local banks. And then we had the GI Bill, where uh, the home ownership provisions in the GI Bill, the subsidies and supports for home ownership, were overwhelmingly given to returning white veterans from World War II and not given in any significant degree to returning black veterans from World War II, further reinforcing the racial wealth gap. So it's a host of things that took place after slavery ended that are really critical from my standpoint in the case for reparations. Can I, I wanna... ask, can I ask, Professor Derry, listen, you know, we, American history is awash in injustice. And, and let's just focus on, for, for, for now, let's just focus on the injustice that was um, uh, imposed upon uh, African Americans. I think, you know, you've, in your work, you've shown this, and, you know, in your exposition, you've shown this, you know, altogether clear. Here's my basic, and I'm, I'm not fighting with you, frankly. I, I think, yes, we, you know, this, this injustice is with us. It has... You know, it has current effects. My main question to, to you, though, is what, how, how are we going to translate, how do we translate your sense of this tremendous injustice into working policy? Because, I mean, it's not like, it's not like you can force the United States government or state governments or municipal governments to do something. You've got to persuade people to, to do these things. My question to you is, how do you persuade people to you know, um, channel large amounts of resources to African Americans even though American society is still awash in racism. I mean, that's the problem that you confront. How do you, how do you propose to confront that problem? Well, I think that, uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that there's a good answer to your question, because this is a tough one. Uh, but I will say that I think that there has been a change that has taken place in the political climate in the United States 
And the ultimate question is whether or not the in the recalcitrant 30% of the population that insists on preserving minority rule and is willing to actually uh, conduct a coup d'etat to try to preserve that minority rule is whether or not they will continue to exercise disproportionate power. I think that the remaining 70% of the American population is open and potentially receptive to the type of plan of restitution that, that we've been describing. It's interesting to note that if you go back to the year 2000, a survey that was conducted by Ravana Popoff and Michael Dawson at the University of Chicago on American attitudes towards reparations found that 4% of white Americans endorsed monetary payments as reparations for black Americans. If you get to the year 2021, a survey conducted at UMass Amherst now indicates that it's closer to 30% of white Americans. So that's a sea change, even if we're not at a point at which the majority of white Americans are in a position to endorse uh, black reparations. Uh, and I think it's that sea change that lies at the heart of the intense opposition that is being demonstrated by some segments of the population towards so-called critical race theory. Because I think there's a recognition that the American public is learning more and more about its true and accurate history, and as a consequence, will be open to an act of restitution. See, you have a more generous view of uh, the American, you know, American public than I do. I mean, you you, you talk about the thirty percent that are recalcitrant. My reading of it is, yep, you got that 30%, but you got a much larger number, uh, larger group who say, listen, yep, uh, there was slavery, yep, there was segregation, yep, there was a lot of terrible things, but uh, world history is awash with misery, world history is awash with terrible things. Um, I'm interested, I can imagine people saying, I want, I, I, we, can't, we can't repair all of the terrible things that have happened through history because there's just so much atrocity. What we can do, however, you know, good folks, I think, say what we can do is try to create uh, public policy that will be helpful for those who are living and going forward. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I must say, I, 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 don't, I don't think there's going to be much of an appetite for trying to, you know, on your level, uh, get right with the atrocities of the past because that is, there's so many atrocities, they go so deep, it's so broad. It's so overwhelming. I think people feel overwhelmed by it. But there are atrocities for which reparations has been paid. So what makes the degree of damage that's been inflicted on black Americans so exceptional that we would not attempt to make a, a concerted effort to address that specific set of harms and damages? Japanese Americans the about reparations payments, yeah. families that lost loved ones in the course of the 911 attacks, for which the United States government itself was not responsible, have re received payments. And the individuals who were held hostage in Iran 
have received $10,000 per day in restitution, which comes to $4.4 million for the typical recipient. And the United States government didn't hold them hostage. So there are many instances in which people have been subjected to harms in which reparations have been paid. I'm not sure why you want to make the case for black Americans continue to be the outlier of an injustice that has not been addressed by the United States government, which lies fully in the hands of the United States government. I think our moderator wants to break in here. (laughs) Well, what what we're stepping or or, or talking around, I think, is the social and political perceptions of African-Americans in the United States, right? And so other groups might be more sympathetic politically. And I think Professor Derry is right that we are seeing shifts after the you know, we'll call it the racial reckoning of, of the summer of 2020, attitudes start to shift thinking about what, what is the source of racial disparities and, and can we be more sympathetic to the history and experiences of Black Americans in the United States? So I think that's one aspect, right? How, how do we think about this group? Um, and I'm not sure we're going to get answers anytime soon about how to change that. But does time matter? And also does form matter? That is, if we, part of what made Ta-Nehisi Coates' piece so popular was that he started with redlining, right? He started in the 1950s and 60s, and that felt more immediate to people. So does it matter how far back we decide to think about what needs to be repaired? And two, does the structure or the form of reparations matter? Will people be uh, less open to cash payouts, right? Based in part on on stereotypes about black people and money, um, you know, like the welfare queen stereotype comes to mind, or are people going to be more open to more structural interventions, a massive investment in welfare queen, like the former uh, the former Green Bay Packers quarterback in Mississippi. Yes. <laughs> right. So this is right. So it's the way we think about these terms and who applies yeah. to is absolutely race. And so do, do white Americans be more open to more structural interventions, massive school investment, changes to health care policy, better welfare policies for families? Does that matter? I think all of it matters. Um, it, it seems to me, and, and, and to, to go back to an earlier point that you put your finger on, I think that we really do have to be attentive to the continuing existence of, you know, racism in our polity. Um, I think that um, Professor Darity, you're exactly correct when you when you sort of went down a list. You know what what about 9/11? You know. Uh, people were very quick to, you know, we got to help these people. There's an emergency. There was this tremendous emotional embrace of people who were victimized by people, you know, it it wasn't the United States government, it was other people. You might very well have said, geez, that's really too bad, but why should I have to pay with my tax dollars for that? I can imagine people saying that, but they did not. Uh, similarly, you're exactly right. Why is it that with respect to uh, the, 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 you know, the, the struggle over um, uh, Japanese Americans and their treatment during World War II? You know, you, it was a very different sort of stance than the stance that one gets when we're talking about African Americans. Why? In part because African Americans are still stigmatized in part because there, frankly, there are millions of people who, as soon as you say slavery, there are millions of Americans 
who actually say they might not, they might not, who actually think they might not say it, but they actually think, you know, actually black people were saved from Africa. Uh, they were brought to the United States. They got the benefit of becoming Christianized. They got the benefits of coming to the United States. You know, frankly, they should thank God that uh, they're in the United States and that they're not in, let's say, Angola. Um, that is still very much a part of this discussion. The fact of the matter is that black people are still stigmatized, and part of the stigmatization is a not only an opposition to the idea of reparations, but actually a contemptuous uh, opposition. That's, that's part of our story. Now, what about this as a partial response? Because it seems to me that that's there, and it's sentimental not to take that into account. But what about this as a partial response? Listen, um, because of the history of racial oppression in the United States, uh, black Americans are needy in various ways. Various ways they are vividly needy. What term, about saying... Uh, can huh? you use a different term besides needy? The term is, yeah. What? So there are disparities, right? There are disparities, right? As a yeah, I, I, needy history, sounds I deeply paternalistic. I was, I was just hoping you Okay, could well, I mean... I mean, I don't even like the term repair, actually, even though I do use the term reparations. But, okay, go ahead. There are, there, for various reasons, if you take a look at the various indicia of well-being or the opposite of, you know, or, or, or disadvantage, uh, black Americans are going to be disadvantaged in, you know, practically everything you can look at from, you know, uh, lifespan to vulnerability yeah. to various disease to vulnerability to Finance. incarceration, the whole gamut. And all of these things are tied to the history of racial oppression. I, I think we can agree on that. How about, though, we, you know, there, there, there's a big country, black Americans are a minority. In order to move the levers of public policy, you're going to have to have a whole lot of people. What about saying we need to push resources to those who um, need more resources? Now, it may vary. It's, it's certainly the case that there are a lot of black Americans who need resources, but you know, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of white Americans who need resources too. Why not make need the central arbiter as opposed to the history of the need? So from my perspective, reparations is not an anti-poverty program. It's mm -hmm. a policy that should be introduced for the purposes of meeting an unmet debt. And specifically, it should be used for the purpose of eliminating the racial wealth gap in the United States, which is uh, a huge 
disparity, a chasm, if you will, between opportunity and economic security between black and white Americans. And it's a chasm that exists at all levels of the class distribution in the United States. So for example, at the upper end of the wealth distribution, one quarter of white American families have an, uh, a level of net worth in excess of $1 million, which is true for only 4% of black American families. Uh, at the bottom end of the distribution, whites in the lowest end of the income distribution, the poorest 20% of whites, have a higher level of wealth at the median than all black Americans taken together. And so uh, this is, this is a, a profound issue that cannot be resolved by some sort of universal need-based program. And in fact, I'm strongly in favor of such universal needs-based programs. I'm an advocate of, a, of, a, of an economic bill of rights for the 21st century, which would include a federal job guarantee and the like. But I recognize that these kinds of steps would not eliminate the racial wealth gap. Universal programs will not eliminate the racial wealth gap. Indirect race-specific programs will not eliminate the racial wealth gap. People frequently talk about giving black Americans scholarships. But if you look at the data carefully, you'll find that black heads of household with a college degree have two-thirds of the net worth of white heads of households who never finished high school. This is all a function of the intergenerational transmission of wealth advantage that is held by white households in contrast with black households. I think the, the last comment I'd like to make in this context is I don't think we should be imprisoned by inaccurate and false beliefs that might be held by a significant segment of the population. As I said earlier, there's 30% of the American population that's wholly intractable. There's another 30% that now says that they favor reparations for black Americans. So the struggle has to be persuading the remaining 40% that reparations is the right thing to do. And clearly it is. And now we're at a point at which we're addressing the logistical dimensions in a detailed way. And that's a major step beyond simply arguing over whether or not reparations is a good or a bad thing. Wouldn't you agree that there's only a certain amount of uh, time, energy, resources that can be devoted to, um, you know, channeling resources to various parts of the, the population? If, if that is true, don't we have to make choices about priorities? So, for instance, for you, Professor Darity, if, if you were put to the choice of either of, you know, um, economic bill of rights, universal economic bill of rights, uh, as opposed to um, reparations for African Americans, if, if, if it was a choice of which of those two things you were going to prioritize, which one would you choose to prioritize? Well, well first of all, I don't want to accept the scarcity principle. Well, why not? I mean, don't you I have think we to? Can do both. We can absolutely do both. In, in a country of 300 million people, there should be a sufficient amount of energy and effort that can be put forward to accomplish both sets of goals. However, 
If you we haven't done me, either one. If you're asking me what to prioritize, independent of the question of whether or not we have to choose one or the other, no. I am going to prioritize reparations at this point because it's a debt that's been unpaid for close to 160 years. Mm-hmm. Is this about both, Professor Darity, you are very clear that there is a specific economic component that needs to be responded to. So it doesn't just seem as if it's about a symbolic value, right? Although in your response about there's a debt that has to be paid, there's something here that's sort of psychic, like this is owed, right? But it, it seems to me but, that you're but also it's, making it's, a point it's a consequence. That it's a consequence of the intergenerational ramifications of the yeah. failure to meet that obligation in the aftermath of the Civil War and yeah. what it has meant in terms of the uh, the opportunities and, and lack of economic security for living Black American descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. So I want to talk a little bit then about how we figure out who's eligible. Hmm. Um, you know, I think there might be places of convergence and divergence here for both of you. Uh, Professor Darity, I know you've talked about this in detail. Who would be eligible for reparations, assuming we were going to move forward with uh, policy reparations for Black Americans? So it would be the descendants of the freedmen who were denied the 40-acre land grants. And so this would be uh, living Black Americans whose ancestor, who have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. Uh, And so, you know, Kirsten Mullen and I have advanced two criteria, which are related to what I just said. The first is a lineage standard. An individual would have to demonstrate that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. Uh, The quality of genealogical research that's been done on the African-American community is is extraordinary now. Uh, And uh, so this is something that is not uh, an impossible mission by any means. And in our book, we actually advocate that the federal government provide free genealogical services to anyone who's trying to establish a claim on those grounds. But there's a second criteria that must be met also, which we refer to as an identity standard. An individual would have to have self-reported or self-identified themselves as Black, Negro, African-American, or Afro-American for at least 12 years before the adoption of a reparations plan or a study commission for reparations uh, to be eligible to uh, to be eligible to receive uh, the benefits of this program. Can I can I push you push back on you a little bit on this one? Because I, I must say that this aspect of of your of your project um, I find I find disturbing. Let me let me put, let me try to push back as, first. as a black South Carolinian. You yes, in fact, let's first? start there. Let's start there. Let's That's start right. There. Okay. I'm from I was born in 1954 in Columbia, South Carolina. It is very likely it is it's I mean, I, I'd be willing to put a lot of money on this proposition that my people were enslaved in South Carolina. It's probably right. I don't you know, I, I haven't done genealogical study, but it's 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 very likely that my forebears were enslaved. On the other hand, I mean, there were some black South Carolinians in the age of slavery who owned slaves. Now, just suppose we did a little bit of study, and it turns out that my people were among the people who somehow 
got from under slavery and became enslavers. If 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 that but was that's, that's, so, a, that's irrelevant from my my standpoint. It doesn't matter who the enslavers were, as long as you have at least one ancestor who was enslaved, then you meet the first part of the criteria. The second part involves the question of whether or not you are currently living as somebody who is a black American. Uh, I I don't want to give reparations to people who are living as white Americans who might also have ancestors who were enslaved in the United States. But it's it's irrelevant who the slave owners were. Okay, can I whether or not you had any ancestor who was enslaved in the United States? I mean virtually all of us have white ancestors who potentially were slave owners. And that does not obviate the horrors that have been inflicted on people who are descendants of the persons who were freed at the end of the Civil War. Okay, let me ask a somewhat different on the the ADOS. So black America is a complicated polity. You know, you got got the ones, you got black Americans like, like me, uh, and, and like me, I mean, I'm like, like you. you. <laughs> what, what about what about one, one thing that I have, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about, though, very worried about. Um, what about uh, black people who hail from, I don't know, Jamaica, Antigua, Nigeria, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Before I get to that, let, let me be clear. Are you saying that reparations is a good idea, but you want it to include other people? Or are you still hammering away at your sets of questions about the significance and importance of adopting a reparations plan? I'm not, listen. I mean, all your concerns seem to be logistical, ultimately. I don't think you disagree with the idea of the importance and relevance of reparations. Yeah, no, I don't. You just keep asking questions about, you know, well, this would go wrong, or this might go wrong, or this can't be done quite this way. Two things. Um, number one, I am, I am, I am not, I am not going to go to war against you know your project for reparations, largely because, frankly, for me, I'm I'm more into. I, I prefer the the the, the framework of. Of distributive justice as a as opposed to reparative justice, but frankly, the reparative justice route gets me much of what I want. So you know, I'm not I'm I'm not going to squawk. I mean, if you know, if if we were talk if we were in a political philosophy seminar room, you know, maybe we would have differences. But frankly, uh, you know, the the, the reparationist project, as far as I can see it, largely aims at getting money and other resources to people who are in need, and to that extent, I'm with it. I do think, however, that the logistical issues really are important, and the political issues, and one thing that I have in mind, to go back to my question, I'm very afraid of uh, dividing black America uh, along lines of, well, you know, whose people were here in the, you know, it, it, before the Civil War. 
is that a, is that a concern? Should I be concerned about that? Or are you saying I ought not be concerned about that? Well, I, I, I frankly, I think that type of division already exists. Uh, yeah. And it's something that it requires a great deal of sensitivity to address, but it is a problem that's already present. Uh, you know, you may want to argue that the debate over reparations is aggravating that division, but the division yes. is definitely there already. Yes, uh, and will it be uh, aggravated? Well, if, if it is aggravated by doing the right thing, then by all means, aggravate it. I am not worried about antagonizing individuals or groups of people as a basis for not doing the right thing. Okay. You so are always going to antagonize somebody. And so the question is whether or not it is the appropriate thing to do. And I want to argue that if we are talking about reparations that's associated with the descendants of the persons who were the freedmen in the aftermath of the Civil War, then it is appropriate to talk about them as the recipients of reparations. And here's why. The first thing that matters is the fact that it is the freedmen who were not given the 40-acre land grant. That condition does not apply to other black people across the diaspora. They do not have that United States specific experience. They may well have claims for reparations. In fact, I would argue that they do, but they don't necessarily have claims for reparations from the United States government. So if somebody is of Haitian ancestry, there definitely is a claim to be made on France. That's a case where there might also be a claim to be made on the United States government. Mm -hmm. But if we think about the British Caribbean, all of those class, all of those countries that now constitute independent nations like Jamaica, Antigua, uh, Barbados, all of them have a claim on the United Kingdom. And I think that's, that's wholly unambiguous. But it is black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved here who were denied the 40 acre land grants that they were promised who have a specific claim on the United States government. And, and I, I don't see anything intrinsically divisive about that. But if some people feel provoked by that, then so be it. This is a question about social costs, right? Professor Darity, you're suggesting that there might be social costs of reparations, but on balance, it's worth it. And Professor Kennedy, you might be suggesting that the social costs might not be worth it, especially if you believe there are other ways to get there. And I, and I think you, you, you both disagree about whether there are, in fact, other ways. So I want to flip the question. What is the social cost of not having a focused conversation or, or, or a thought project or, or political movement for reparations for Black Americans in the United States, right? That is, if we abandon this project um, and think we're going to do something that's broader or more universal based on uh, societal-wide disparities, what are the political and social or cultural costs there? Oh, there are costs because, I mean, obviously there are people who uh, have, have invested very strongly in a reparationist project and are going to feel wronged if that doesn't proceed. And, you know, is that a social cost? Yeah, it's a social cost. And I think it's an important one that people ought to, ought to uh, you know, take in, in, into account. The social cost is not purely attitudinal. It's substantive. Uh, and the most substantive consideration is the following. 
for 160 years, black Americans have been seeking full citizenship in the United States. And uh, it would require a reparations plan for black Americans to have the material basis for full citizenship. This contrasts a bit with the Native American community whose goal and objective, as I understand it, is primarily uh, considerations of sovereignty. But if we are substantively concerned about the citizenship status, the effective citizenship status of black Americans, then the only way this can be accomplished is through a full-scale reparations plan. After 2020, we saw, you know, what we could call historic protests or racial justice. By 2022, I, I'd say we're seeing some backlash to that. And so does that, does the current context provide any insights for the viability or possibility of reparations in the United States? Is it more needed than ever? Or does it tell us something about how difficult the political road might be ahead for reparations projects? I think that the current, you know, uh, landscape shows us it's been difficult uh, and will continue to be difficult. I mean, after all, we're talking just just a couple of weeks ago, the United States Supreme Court was hearing the latest uh, uh, affirmative action case involving involving the very institution that is helping to sponsor this wonderful forum. Now. Affirmative action is a sort of, it seems to me, is a, in, in higher education is a very interesting uh, item because there it seems what we've really had is a disguised reparations project. Um, the Supreme Court of the United States basically said, no, you can't have racial affirmative action on explicit reparations grounds. That's what that, you know, Baki. So they came up with something else, namely a diversity rationale. But the diversity rationale, actually, that's, you know, that, that was nominal. The thing that was really pushing it was a sense that, you know, these people have been wronged and we need to do something to repair that. I think that affirmative action, at least with black Americans, was very largely reparations-based with this diversity, um, this diversity cover. I think what is about to happen, however, is that we're about to lose that, and I think that um, the pushback against a very modest, I mean, good grief, the affirmative action in higher education was a very modest thing. But even that modest reform is going to be, from what I can tell, taken back. And that is a sign of how um, unwelcome, how unwelcome uh, racial reformism is, regardless of the theory that is under, you know, that is, that is, that is, um, uh, regardless of the theory in which it is pitched. So I, I want to go back to my point about minority rule. 
I don't want to argue that the existing Supreme Court is really part of the architecture of a minority rule in the United States. And so that's one of the central questions as to whether or not we will restore an environment in which the majority of Americans are actually making decisions about what happens in this country. So I don't want to view the Supreme Court's decision as an indicator of mm -hmm. widespread beliefs across the entire American population. We know that this is a court that was designed to promote the position of a minority perspective in the United States. However, that said, uh, affirmative action from my perspective is not reparations. It's not a form of reparations. It's an anti-discrimination measure. And on top of that, to the extent that it's effective, and I, I think Professor Kennedy's absolutely right that it's been applied quite modestly. Uh, if we look at the demographic composition of the faculties at the most elite universities in the United States, we can't say that a heck of a lot has really happened over the course of the past 30 years. And so, uh, so affirmative action has been modest in its impact. But if we want to think about what its implications are, if it's more effectively applied, it has an impact on income inequality, but it has very little effect on wealth inequality. And so once again, we're, we're, we're confronted with this issue of what do we do about the racial wealth gap? And affirmative action is not something that can contribute anything significant to elimination of the racial wealth gap. So we've been talking about this. Oh, I want to go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, please, please. I was going to say we've been talking about it a bit abstractly, and so I want to make it more focused and think about HB 40, right, as a, as a political step in in moving towards reparations. And I'd like to know, Professor Darity, whether you support that move, what do you think the future of that move is? And Professor Kennedy, to the extent that you've been raising concerns about how would this work, right, what do you think about just establishing um, a congressional inquiry to try to understand how would it work? Professor Darity? So I think that the idea of having some form of a congressional inquiry or a presidential commission, for that matter, to develop and design appropriate proposals for reparations uh, is not a bad idea. Uh, it was a, a strategy that was pursued as a prelude to the Japanese-American reparations. There was a commission that pr produced a, a very important report that uh, that prompted uh, the development of a plan of reparations for Japanese Americans. And so I, I don't think that that's a bad idea. I do think that H.R. 40 is a terrible piece of legislation. And so I do not view it as providing uh, a stepping stone to a comprehensive reparations plan. And uh, I, I, I don't think I should elaborate at this point, but I would like to refer people to uh, an editorial that Kirsten Mullen wrote for Bloomberg in which she detailed the weaknesses in H.R. 40, and I encourage people to take a look at that. Great. Dr. Kennedy? I don't know, frankly, about the, you know, the, I haven't studied the, 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 the legislation to which you refer. The general idea, however, of uh, having a commission, having some, you know, deliberation about this seems to me to be a good idea. Uh, you know, serious people have been thinking about this for a good, you know, for a, a long period of time. Uh, it, it seems to me that um, this conversation needs to be going on and uh, reinforced and facilitated 
along with other uh, conversations. The thing I would say is um, we need to have honest, open discussion in which people really lay their cards on the table. And to the extent that that can be done in government, to the extent that that can be done in our universities, we should, we should take every opportunity um, to do that. One other point, I guess, with, with Professor Darity, when he's talking about the Supreme Court, I, I, I would agree. I don't think that the Supreme Court's rulings are, you know, what the Supreme Court says is a good uh, indication of what the majority of Americans think. Having said that, however, I don't, I, you know, the majority of Americans, the majority of Americans may think things that are completely stupid. I don't take any solace in being with, frankly, a majority. Um, and in my view, we face a, um, you know, a, a, a public opinion that has built within it ideas that are profoundly destructive. I'm with you, Professor Darity. I think that you're absolutely right when you say, listen, what we have to think about is what is appropriate. We need to take into account political realities. We need to take into account maybe what a majority of people think in terms of just, you know, so that we won't be, uh, so we won't be sentimental, so that we won't, you know, if, if we want to be realistic and pushing things forward, we have to take everything into account. But when you say that, you know, what ultimately matters is our view of what is right, on that, I would agree with you. And I think that we need to, uh, you know, have forums like this in which people really put their cards uh, on the table. Yeah, I would say that the existence of forums like this, which are increasing in presence, mm -hmm. is actually another positive indicator of uh, the willingness of more and more Americans to take seriously the idea of reparations. And when I first started working on this about 30 years ago, and I was a reparation skeptic at that point, uh, I thought not that I didn't think reparations was a bad idea. I just thought it was something that would never happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and as I was asked to write uh, an and introduction for a volume called The Wealth of Races by an economist named Richard America. Mm -hmm. uh, that's really his name, Richard F. America. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and he insisted that I write the introduction despite my skepticism. Uh, and I, I think there was some method in his madness because as I read the essays that were contribute contributions to that volume, I began to say to myself, well, it doesn't really matter how hard this is going to be to, to make happen. It's, it's so much the right thing that I'm going to uh, invest my time and energy and research skills in an effort to, to try to design an appropriate program and, and push for it. Um, and it was at that point that I said, well, you, if you think about previous points in time, say it was 1817 in the United States, you might be convinced that slavery would never come to an end, but would that be a justification for not opposing it? And, and my answer was, of course not. It would not be a justification for not opposing it, just being pessimistic about the prospects of it happening. 
And so that's that's how I got on the path to to thinking about reparations. I, I want to remind our, our our trajectories are interesting because I, I guess my the trajectory of my thinking is the flip of yours. Okay. So I think that I think that you know 25 years ago I would have been much more uh, embracing of reparationist logic and the reparationist you know feeling, uh, and I think that over time I've 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 gone away from that and and and, and more claimed by, like I say, um, uh, redistributionist, distributive justice, or to put it a little different way, if we have two people, if I have two people in front of me, and one person is in need because of, you know, I don't know, they, they, they just came to these shores, they just washed up on these shores, but they are in deep need. I want a polity that responds to their need. Why? Because they are in need. Now, person number two is in need as well, but their need is linked to a history of racial oppression in America. I want to know, I mean, you know, inquiring minds want to know. I want to know about the history of these two needs what was ultimately grabbing me is the, the need of both. And it's, it's, it's that issue of need that grabs me more than the issue of the history of the need. And I guess what concerns me is, in at least with some reparationists, I get the sense that it's the it's the history of the need that actually is more important than the present sense of desperate need itself. Well, again, I don't start with the scarcity principles that you're adopting, that you have to make a choice between supporting people in these two different sets of circumstances. But what I do think is it should be different types of uh of resources that should be forthcoming under each set of circumstances. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's not solely the historical record that's at play, it's the consequences of that historical record for the living individuals. And so from my standpoint, it's a question of justice that I'm trying to address. And uh, and and it's it's it requires an investigation of the the reasons why individuals are in the conditions that they are today. If one is trying to be concerned about uh, creating a more just and fair society. So I do want to remind our participants that they can ask questions. I want to go to some of the questions now. One interesting question was about reparation proposals that had been presented to UNC for the descendants of slaves um, who were owned by the university. And for me, that's actually a question about the level at which reparations has to take place. Right? Is it possible for state or local government or smaller entities, Asheville, the city of Asheville, for example, agree to engage in some sort of reparation work um, you know, in that for their town, is it possible for smaller entities to do that work? Or is this something that has to be done at a federal level, something that has to be done with um, wide consensus about how to move forward? 
It depends heavily on what the objective is. And, and since I'm committed to the view that a reparations project must be designed in such a way that it eliminates the racial wealth differential in the United States by building the assets that are possessed by black Americans to a level that is similar to the average level that is held by white Americans, then state and local initiatives are simply not going to do the trick. Uh, individual initiatives or private organizations' actions are not going to take, turn the trick either. Uh, I think people may not fully appreciate how large a number $14 trillion is. So let me, let me give two, two illustrations that might be useful. If, if generous donors put $1 billion into a fund for reparations on a monthly basis, so $12 billion per annum, and, and the typical university that is engaged in some act of atonement is usually talking about no more than $100 million. And most of the cities that are doing something like Evanston or Providence, Rhode Island, are talking about $10 million. Okay, If, if generous donors put $1 billion into a fund on a monthly basis, it would take a millennium to get to $14 trillion. Okay. If we think about the combined budgets of all state and local governments in the United States, that comes to less than $5 trillion. I'm talking about a bill, again, of $14 trillion. And so it is only the federal government that has the capacity to fund a project on that scale to address a longstanding historical injustice in the United States. Okay, you have any points of convergence there or divergence? I guess my question would be: um, Are there some are there are there some things that are so large that they are beyond our capacity to rectify? I mean, you you just talked about how how big that was, how you know how much money. Yeah. Does this means so, then. I mean, I, I think. I, frankly, I kind of think of. You know, um, would it be, just suppose it took everything in the United States, all assets, all assets, would you be willing to devote all assets in the United States to the addressing of the, the you know, the, 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 the victimization of African Americans? Well, you know, there are people who have argued for numbers much, much higher than the one that I've talked about. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, if you were to talk to Thomas Kramer at the University of Connecticut, he would probably say that my $14 trillion figure is a low ball on the amount that would be required to close the racial wealth gap. And he would say it's probably 17 to $19 trillion. He's also been the architect of another estimate uh, that he does not personally say should be used, but a lot of people have seized upon it, which is the amount of time that was stolen from the enslaved, uh, a, a, uh, an economic value assigned to the amount of time that was stolen from the persons who were enslaved, and that essentially 24 hours a day was, was stolen time. And that estimate comes to $6.2 quadrillion. Uh, I would not advocate 
trying to pay $6.2 quadrillion to anyone, uh, in part because the inflationary consequences would be so severe that the worth of the money that you've given people would be eliminated overnight. So, uh, so yes, there is a ceiling on the amount that I would think is, is justifiable. Uh, but $14 trillion is manageable, given the United States government's response to the events of the Great Recession and to the pandemic. Uh, okay. And so, you would not necessarily have to pay the $14 trillion out at one time. You could do it. I wouldn't want to do it any longer than a decade, but you could spread the money out across the course of a decade, and that would be an entirely manageable project for the federal government. Okay, but 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 you just have you but you have acknowledged that manageability is part of your calculus. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, right. you know, there's a famous observation that Frederick Douglass made many years ago. You know, he said it would be impossible to come up with an amount that would truly compensate the formerly enslaved for the horrors that they had been subjected to. But he said, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Mm -hmm. okay. So uh, we've had some questions about logistics. And one is, Professor Darity, do you believe that if you got the number you wanted, it would actually close that gap? And how would that gap stay closed, assuming mm -hmm. discrimination endures? So, um, I, you know, once again, I, I, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I certainly, you know, I'm an advocate of continuing to work to eliminate discrimination. Uh, but the key factor that produces the racial wealth gap is the, uh, is the unequal intergenerational transmission of resources between black, blacks and whites. And what a reparations plan would do of the type that I'm describing is it would interrupt that unequal distribution of resources. So the question then is, is there some reason to think that the racial wealth gap might reopen? Uh, and there are some people who have argued that that's a possibility. Uh, I would say that's only something to worry about if, in fact, the reason why it reopens is because of atrocities that have been directed to uh, against black Americans, in which case you reopen the case for reparations. Um, and so you would have to ultimately eliminate the factors that produce the racial wealth gap to be able to have a sustainable reparations program where you could meet the third condition in our definition, which is closure. Mr. Mm -hmm. Ken, any thoughts about that? I mean, I'm already hearing you. <laughs> I'm already hearing a potential uh, response about the difficulty we have as Americans about deciding what the source of problems are, right? And so how would we come to consensus that a reopen gap might be due to state sanction, discrimination, or racial subordination? No, I don't I don't I don't I don't have any further to add on that point. <laughs> so um so we have a question about thinking about reparations as sentimental. Um, and this goes back to this question about stigma and how we think about different groups. Um, and so is there, is language like that signaling something about 
how we think about the how meritorious each group is would be use words like sentimental for thinking about Holocaust survivors and their descendants, right? Or the descendants of people who were interned because they were Japanese. And this is really a question about rhetoric, right? How how important is rhetoric here? I mean, what does that tell us about the feasibility of this project? Well, you know, there there are people who have said, don't use the term reparations because that uh, raises some people's hackles. Find another term. And, and my response is, I'm not trying to do this out of any course of deception. I want this to happen because the vast majority of Americans agree that it is something that should happen. And so we will try to persuade people with the language that is as honest as possible. Mm -hmm. I respect that a great deal, Professor Darity. I really do. I, I think, you know, transparency. In that spirit, let me ask you a question. I've, what about, so how do you deal with people who have done well? Let's suppose that their folks like my folks in South Carolina, were enslaved, but over time, for various reasons, they've done extremely well. Do they get the benefit of reparations even though they have now done extremely well? Yeah, well, I, I said earlier, reparations is not an anti-poverty program. It is not needs-based in terms of the criteria for eligibility. Okay. It is meant for the individuals who are the black descendants of persons who were enslaved in the United States. And, so Oprah, uh, yeah, people did, yes, reparations Oprah would, would be perfectly eligible. LeBron James would be perfectly eligible. Okay. If these individuals chose not to receive reparations, then that's their discretion. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind. When reparations was paid to victims of the Holocaust, no one asked how well they were doing financially in that moment. When reparations were paid to Japanese Americans who had been unjustly incarcerated during the course of World War II, no one asked how they were doing at that particular moment. That was not a factor that was involved in providing restitution for the harms that they had been subjected to. And the fact that a living black American might be doing fairly well financially does not mean they have not been subjected to the harms of white supremacy. No, it, it doesn't, and I, I would agree with that. Um, the thing about history is so funny. I mean, how would you deal with the person who would say, you're absolutely right, and you know, most of the time, oppression has very destructive consequences. We all know, however, that, you know, social life is funny. Um, there were some very beautiful things that were the upshot of, you know, atrocity. So the blues, beautiful. Jazz, blues. Yes, and one, that's exactly right. And so, you know, what, you know, so if one were to say, um, well, I mean, living does that black get factored in too? Many of us who are living black Americans would not be here at all if it was not for the rapes that our ancestor foremothers were subjected to. 
So you could say that there are some things that are beneficial outcomes of atrocities, but that doesn't mean that the kinds of economic conditions and differential opportunities that are associated with the racial wealth gap is not something that affects virtually all black Americans today adversely. And that's what I'm focused on. I'm not focused on the question of cultural products and the like. I'm focusing on the question of differences in the capacity to exercise full citizenship in the United States that are anchored on monetary differences in resources. So uh, we're going to wrap up soon, but I want to invite each of you to get a final word about this topic before we close. Solidarity. Um, I, I just, first of all, just let me say I'm grateful for uh, for this event, uh, for the conversation with Professor Kennedy, for for your uh, your active and and gracious moderation, uh, <laughs> and that I'm hoping that it is conversations like this that continue to uh, produce an opportunity for people to think about reparations in a way in which they may not have in the past, in a more positive way that they may not have in the past. So uh, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to join you all in this conversation. Let me echo, I'd I'd like to echo what uh, Professor Darity uh, just said. Um, I think it's been a you know interesting and useful conversation. Uh, differences have been voiced, and you know people have given their best insofar as trying to address uh, their their differences. I also want to end by giving a tip of the hat uh, to Professor Darity. He has, for a long period of time, been focused on this subject and has very patiently and carefully sought to respond to uh, all sorts of uh, critics. And I really respect him for being so patient and so calm and so comprehensive in his efforts at responding uh, to his critics. Uh, You know, not everybody is gonna agree about things. And they're going to be perfectly responsible, sensible people who are going to disagree. And, you know, intellectual intellectual work should be about trying to persuade people based on evidence, based on argument. And I think that the Professor Darity has really been exemplary in uh, showing uh, how that's done. So... I too want to thank uh, want to thank our host, thank our moderator, and I very much appreciate being part uh, of this forum. I echo both of your sentiments and thank you both for joining us. I also want to thank our participants for joining us tonight. Please don't forget there's a survey to take out to, to fill out if you've enjoyed this programming. Um, so, and a recording of this event is going to be available on YouTube. I hope you all join us again for our conversations in the future. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Kirsten is a writer, a folklorist, a museum consultant, and a lecturer lecturer whose work focuses on race, art, history, and politics. And William is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy at Duke University. 
And based upon what I've seen, I would describe them as partners in justice who should be recognized as the foremost experts on reparations for Black Americans. Uh, Kirsten and William have, they got their own program, they got their own run of show, so I'm going to let them do their thing. I'm going to turn my camera off for a moment. I may pop in and out and ask some questions, but I'm going to let them do their thing. So thank you all for being here. And Kirsten and William, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much, Langston. Um, we are so appreciative of this invitation and the opportunity to speak with you and to uh, the audience that you have convened um, you know, across the country and, and, and perhaps the world. Um, so we were asked to talk a little bit about our origin stories and about the origin, uh, the origins of the book from Here to Equality. And um, you know, we both grew up in families that I would describe as race families. Uh, we used to joke in my household that race was a member of the family. It was talked about every day, almost at every meal. Uh, I grew up in segregated Texas, Fort Worth to be specific. Um, my life changed dramatically in third grade when my mother put me in um, a, a majority white parochial school. Uh, but we lived in a black community, segregated black community. Um, um, you know, this was a time when uh, in Texas, um, you know, there was work for black people, but you did not have the kind of integration, the kind of influence, the kind of authority um, that uh, blacks had even in, you know, the North or even other Southern cities. And, um, you know, my mother was very active politically. My grandparents were very active. Uh, my grandfather was a minister. He was a, a lifelong NAACP uh, member, um, was very uh, determined that his congregation become members of the NAACP, that they, that they not just talk, but that they act on their views uh, and their convictions. And that's something that I grew up with. Um, I also was very aware um, when I began to go to this majority white school and was invited uh, into the homes of some of my white classmates that there was this tremendous uh, difference in terms of the sort of material, um, what do you call that, just the, the um, you know, just the, the kind of lives that they were living, the material stuff of their lives. And, um, you know, I came from a, a working, um, you could say sort of upper lower, you know, upper lower class community, but these are hardworking folks, you know, who had two and three jobs, my mother included. Um, and so I knew that it wasn't a case of the black people I knew not working hard. You know, uh, it was not a case uh, of their not being smart. It wasn't a case that they were spending their money unwisely. Um, but there was something fundamentally wrong. <laughs> and I can remember bringing those questions to, you know, to the table, to the, to the, to the dinner table at my household. So, um, and then when our first child was born, uh, uh, my, uh, my grandfather on my, my father's side uh, said something to me that didn't really strike me at the time. Uh, when we presented our infant, uh, his great-grandson, uh, he said he pronounced him the fifth generation. And I didn't quite, you know, understand what he meant. And I didn't ask him uh, at the time what he meant. But what he, was, what he was referring to was the fact that he was the fifth, he was part of the fifth generation born after, um, after slavery. And um, so on my father's side, I am the fourth generation. But on my mother's side, I'm actually the third. Uh, my 
maternal grandmother, uh, Harriet Tyler Farrell Mitchell, uh, is the daughter, uh, or was, she's, she's now deceased, but she was the daughter of uh, someone who had, was born enslaved. And my children knew her, you know, into their adulthood. So if you're looking at slavery from a generational um, vantage point, uh, slavery was not that far, uh, uh, not that long ago in my family. Uh, my grandmother knew her father. Uh, she grew up with him. And so uh, it was not a mystery to her, uh, you know, knowing someone who had been born enslaved. And in my family, on my mother's side, uh, my great grandmother was the daughter of two people who had been enslaved on Rose Hill Plantation in North Carolina. And uh, and I knew her. Uh, I think I was about eight or nine years of age when she when she finally passed. Uh, but I had had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with her in Wilson, North Carolina, particularly sitting on my grandmother's porch. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, from that standpoint, uh, when I was the fourth generation from slavery and our son's the fifth. And I'm pretty much convinced that that's also the case on my father's side of the family, although there's some uncertainty about whether or not my great-grandparents were enslaved or whether it was my great-great-grandparents. That's that's something that we haven't completely determined. But I know on my mother's side that I'm the fourth generation from slavery. So I think that's been important in terms of the way in which Kirsten and I have thought about this project. Um, I'd like to give you a more accurate story about the evolution of the book, though. <laughs> uh, the first edition of From Here to Equality was published in 2020. Uh, and the second edition just last year, the paperback edition that includes a new preface. Uh, but we had been working on the book for a decade before it was finally published. Uh, and that's a story unto itself. Uh, you know, I think what we we basically completely revised, revamped a couple of versions of the manuscript before we were satisfied. Uh, but the ideas in the book are are present in a number of things that we wrote prior to that. Uh, and one one example is the criterion for eligibility or the criteria for eligibility, which are are laid out explicitly in a paper that was published in 2003 in the American Economic Association's Proceedings. And so, um, you know, I think that the ideas that we, we develop in the book are definitely present in materials that we had written before then. Pay attention to your um, your efforts as the um, the writer of the introduction of a collection of essays on reparation. Yeah, so in 1989, Richard America, yeah, and that's really his name. Richard America asked me to write the preface to a book that he was editing called The Wealth of Races. And this was the collection of essays by economists who were attempting to calculate how much reparations should be paid uh, to the descendants of the enslaved. And um, and I, my reaction at the time, I was a reparation skeptic. And so I, I, my reaction at the time was, uh, well, Richard, this is never going to happen. Why are we investing our time in doing this? It's a, it's a waste of time. 
And Richard said, uh, if you want to say that after you read the materials, if you want to say that in your introductory essay, you know, feel free to do so. Uh, so I think he was somewhat prescient, and he knew uh, he knew something about what my reaction would be. And once I started reading the essays, I became so convinced that this was something that was the right thing to do, that it was really the only way to really alter the conditions that are faced by uh, living Black American descendants of persons enslaved in the United States that even if the odds were extremely long, it was something that we would have to work towards and do. And so I think my first major piece personally on reparations was the uh, the introduction to the volume that, that Richard America uh, produced. And then I guess you and I did a paper together, an, an op-ed at one point for The Root. I don't know, that's what, maybe... 2008 at the at the latest yeah so so i'd say there's a window of about 30 years where the the two of us have been thinking about and working on these issues and and publishing material about it so yeah. maybe we'll first pivot you know to the formal the formal presentation, presentation. <laughs> okay so maybe you yeah okay so um so um, so Langston, you you mentioned uh, when we were talking before we came on, you mentioned uh, the effects of the of the pandemic, uh, n not only in creating your program but also in altering the amount of time that people devote to podcasts, their attentiveness, their interest in these kinds of issues, and. Um, when when our book came out in 2020, it coincided with the formal or official onset of the pandemic. I, we're convinced that the disease was present in the United States at least uh, by the latter part of the of 2019. But uh, but uh, we were also uh, then compelled to think about the relationship between COVID-19 and the arguments for reparations. And so briefly, uh, we're going to start our discussion this evening with a focus on the sets of arguments that have been raised in opposition to reparations. Uh, and, uh, but, but I also want to emphasize that the relationship between reparations and COVID-19 is something that we have to pay close attention to. Uh, excess COVID-19 black mortality for us reinforced the importance of reparations. We did an opinion piece for the Philadelphia Inquiry, Inquirer that was published in April 20, uh, April on April 20th, 2020. Uh, and in, in that piece, uh, we had, we reported that in North Carolina, blacks were 22% of the state's population, but 32% of the confirmed cases of COVID-19 and 37% of the deaths from COVID-19. In Mecklenburg County, the county that includes Charlotte, North Carolina, Blacks constituted about 31% of the population at that time, 
but 44% of the cases of COVID-19 and half of the deaths from COVID-19. In the state of Louisiana, where Black Americans made up about 33% of the population, 70% of the confirmed deaths, more than twice as many people uh, in the population proportionately uh, were Black. So uh, excess mortality was attributable to Blacks being over-concentrated in occupations with high degrees of exposure to the virus, attributable to Blacks having a disproportionately high number of pre-existing conditions as a residue, a vicious residue of racial inequality in the United States, and these would include asthma, diabetes, and hypertension. Although we argue that the fundamental pre-existing condition is a resources gap which is best captured by the black-white wealth differential, wealth inequality. Blacks represent about, black American descendants of US slavery represent about 12% of the population, but possess less than 2% of the nation's wealth. And that results in a gap of about $840,000 in difference in net worth between the average black and white household. So we'd like to read some from from here's equality um, to kind of frame you know the argument that we're making and also to kind of help all of us get on the same page to have this conversation together. So um, we say the following: From here to equality draws a thick line from the nation's origins to the present. The case we build in this volume is based on all three tiers or phases of injustice: slavery. American apartheid or Jim Crow, and the combined effects of present day discrimination and the ongoing deprecation of black lives. Most advocates of black reparations have focused exclusively on the injustices of slavery as the basis for redress. Law professor Boris Bicker argued that the case for black reparations should center solely on the harms of legalized segregation, while Roy L. Brooks, also a legal scholar, has argued that the foundation for black reparations is, quote, the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, end quote. We submit that the bill of particulars for black reparations also must include contemporary ongoing injustices or injustices resulting in barriers and penalties for the black descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. Um, sociologist Joe Fagan catalogs the conflicting injuries um, on Black Americans, including wage penalties, physical and psycho-emotional health wounds, and community and institutional damages. Despite the Brown, the Brown uh, v. Board of Education decision in 1954, a wave of federal legislation in the 1960s and 1970s intended to eliminate legal apartheid in the United States and the enactment of anti-discrimination laws, Blacks continue to bear the weight of American racism. That burden is manifest in labor market discrimination, grossly attenuated wealth, confinement to neighborhoods with lower levels of amenities and safety, disproportionate exposure to inferior schooling, significantly greater danger in encounters with the police and the criminal justice system writ large, and a general social disdain for the value of Black people's lives. The, key, the legal apparatus created by the civil rights revolution does little to address the complex web of harms imposed upon Black Americans today. 
taken individually, any one of these three tiers of injustice, slavery, the regime of legal segregation and subordination, and current discrimination makes a powerful case for Black reparations. Taken collectively, they are impossible to ignore. Uh, in our book, we attempt to offer a conceptual definition of reparations, and I'd like to share uh, a passage from the book in which we uh, elaborate on what reparations should mean in general. And then we talk about its application to the specific case of Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. So we say the following. Reparations are a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for a grievous injustice. Where African Americans are concerned, the grievous injustices that make the case for reparations include slavery, legal segregation or Jim Crow, and ongoing discrimina discrimination and stigmatization. ARC, A-R-C, the acronym that stands for Acknowledgement, Redress, and Closure, characterizes the three essential elements of the reparations program that we are advocating. Acknowledgement, redress, and closure are components of any effective reparations project. Acknowledgement involves recognition and admission of the wrongs by the perpetrators or beneficiaries of the injustice. For African Americans, this means the receipt of a formal apology and a commitment for redress on the part of the American people as a whole to be represented in principle by the national government. A national act of declaration that a great wrong has been committed, but beyond an apology, acknowledgement requires those who benefited from the exercise of the atrocities to recognize the advantages they gained and commit themselves to the cause of redress. Now, redress is the second component of our concept of reparations, and this involves restitution for the damages that have been incurred uh, by the, the victimized community. And this would mean in the context of, uh, of Black American descendants of U.S. slavery that uh, the federal government would make a concerted effort to eliminate the racial wealth differential in the United States. Now, we mentioned a moment ago that that comes to approximately $840,000 per household. Uh, collectively, this would require an expenditure in excess of $14 trillion by the federal government. And we argue that that's the minimum amount that redress should take. It's similar to the way in which redress has been conducted for other victimized communities. That is to say, a direct payment to the eligible recipients, whether we're talking about the reparations plan that was provided for Japanese Americans who were subjected to unjust incarceration during the course of World War II, or uh, the German government's payments to victims of the Holocaust. Now, the third component, closure, involves an agreement on the part of the culpable party, in this case, the United States government, and uh, the Black American population that would be eligible for reparations, that the debt has been paid satisfactorily. Um, and so at, at that point, the account would be settled and uh, Black Americans would proceed uh, to not make any further claims on the United States government for compensation unless, unless there is a renewal of the atrocities or new types of atrocities are directed against that community. 
we want to talk a bit briefly about some of the um, some of the claims that people make uh, you know, in opposition for, um, to reparations. And um, you know, one of those that we hear frequently is uh, well, first of all, just this whole concept, this whole question, this notion of slavery reparations. Um, I mean, as we've said, we're not talking simply about slavery. I mean, slavery is the whole from which everything, you know, it's a, uh, you know, which everything's uh, the catalyst from which everything sprung. But we're talking not just about slavery, but also about, you know, a hundred years, you know, nearly a hundred years of legal segregation and white terror campaigns, and also about, you know, all of the injustices, all the atrocities and harms that are are still happening today. It's not as if we've ever reached the point where where um, those kinds of atrocities ceased. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in the second edition, mm -hmm. we had used the language reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And we changed it in the second edition to conciliation. Exactly. Because there was never any previous moment of right. uh, uh, of conciliation between uh, between blacks and whites in the United States. I mean, we're talking about the fact that black people have never been fully admitted as citizens in this country. And that is something that could have happened at the end of the Civil War, at the point of emancipation, but it did not. Uh, and it actually has not happened uh, to this day. Uh, but another point of opposition that I'd like to discuss briefly, uh, we hear, you know, people say, well, why didn't white America or America in general, uh, or didn't white America or white America in general already pay its debt for slavery in blood by waging the Civil War, which resulted in emancipation? Um, you know, we, you know, some of you may be aware that, um, um, you know, then House GOP uh, coverage chair Mike Pence said, this was in 2009, I don't believe there should be reparations. You know, then, then he identifies himself uh, as a student of American history uh, and asserts that well, reparations were paid in the lives of 600,000 Americans who fell on both sides in the Civil War. Well, Pence fails to acknowledge that nearly half of those people fighting, the Confederates, were fighting to maintain slavery, <laughs> not to end it. Um, enslaved black people were freed not because of white, not because white Confederates uh, liberated them. They were freed because the Union military forces, which included more than 180,000 black men and women, won the war. Um, some contend that blacks already had received um, reparations in the form of Obama, uh, Barack Obama's election as the 44th president of the United States. Um, you had Pence and uh, Senate Majority uh, Leader then Mitch McConnell making this claim uh, at the same time, time period, even though the majority of white Americans voted against Obama, 39% of whites compared with 93% of blacks and 71% of Latinx, if by black reparations you mean the elimination of the huge gulf in black-white wealth, which we do advise, Obama's election for all of its salutary effects did not significantly move that needle. Um, you know, you had, uh, again, Mike Pence talking about uh, you know, Republican policy initiatives with regard to economics and health care and energy issues. Uh, but in fact, none of this translated into uh, material advantages or full citizenship for Black people. Um, so back to this notion that slavery was not so long ago. Um, you know, we memorialize plantations across the American South. It's a very big business. Um, you know, wedding destinations, family reunions. You know, all too often the central essential black presence on those plantations is downplayed or the institution of slavery is described as benign 
or that Blacks were delighted by the association. Uh, this notion that slavery is not so distant falls away when one looks at the institution from a generational standpoint. Um, we include um, uh, some stories of, uh, from one of our favorite uh, uh, consultants, Hortense McClinton, um, who is the daughter of an enslaved person. So this is a living person. She's what, 104? She's 104 now. 104 years old now. Uh, we spoke to her about 10 days ago on the phone. She had called us to discuss, uh, you know, some of the recent uh, events related to the, um, the January 6th uh, hearing. congressional hearing. Um, but yes, her father, Sebron James King, was an infant when slavery ended. So he was born enslaved. Yeah, he was uh, born in January of 1865. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she is one of at least four people that we learned about over the course of researching from Here to Equality who were the children of people who were enslaved, including my grandmother, uh, my mother's mother. Um, you know, another uh, of these 21st century children of enslaved black Americans is Ruth Odom Bonner, whose father, Elijah Odom, was born enslaved in Mississippi and later would become a physician. Um, his daughter, Ruth, became active in the civil rights movement in her hometown of Cleveland. Um, we remember her because the Smithsonian Institution and then President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama invited her and members of their family, three generations of their family, to ring the Freedom Bell as a dedication ceremony for the National Museum of African American History and Culture in September 2016. Um, that bell had originally graced Williamsburg, Virginia's first um, Baptist church which was founded by Blacks in 1776, quote, in defiance of local law, end quote. But, you know, if we wait long enough, all Black Americans whose parents were enslaved and all who lived through nearly 100 years of racial apartheid in this country will have died. Um, but the atrocities keep coming, and that is why we need a program of reparations for Black Americans. Yeah, we think that these atrocities are well encapsulated in um, measures of the devaluation of black lives. And so there's a section of the book in which we actually attempt to provide numerical estimates of the magnitude of the devaluation of black lives. So folks in the Black Lives Matter movement could have taken a further step by actually attempting to demonstrate what the measurable values are of the magnitude at which black lives have been discounted in American society. Uh, so let, 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 let me share again from the text. There are a number of ways in which numerical estimates can be placed on the differential value assigned to black versus white lives in the United States. For example, as early as the 1840s, New York life typically insured whites for anywhere from $1,000 to $5,000, while enslaved Blacks typically were insured on behalf of their owners for no more than $400 and sometimes for as little as $200. It has been estimated that in 1928, there was one hospital bed for every 139 white Americans but only one for every 1,941 Black Americans, indicating that the average Black life was worth only 7% of the average white life. During the Jim Crow years, when the dual system of, 
schooling operated, the gap in per pupil expenditures provides a powerful index of the magnitude of the discount rate on black lives. For example, in 1939 to 1940, per pupil expenditures for white students in most of the southern states were three times more than they were for black students, suggesting that a young black life was worth about 30% of a young white life. In Mississippi, per pupil expenditures were seven times greater, suggesting that in Mississippi at that time, a young black life was worth 15% of a young white life. In Alabama in 1912, and Kirsten discovered this, uh, the document with this, this evidence in it in, in a California- yeah, the California African-American uh, Museum of yeah, History yeah. Yeah, in Los yeah, Angeles. In Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So in Alabama in 1912, a cluster of counties spent 32 cents on black students' education per every $15 spent on white students' education, implying that a white youth's life was deemed to be worth an incredible 4,700% more than a black youth's life. Today, the estimated difference in spending per black and white student is reduced substantially, although a 13% gap remains. Unfortunately, the narrowing of the spending gap disguises a profound racial gap in curriculum and instruction in a world of desegregated schools. The disparity in the rate of placement of black students in gifted and talented programs provides a marked indicator of the devaluation of black youth in the nation's educational system. Black and Latinx students constitute 40% of America's public school students, but only 26% of the students enrolled in gifted and talented programs. The average black child is 66% less likely to be referred for gifted math and reading than their white classmates. A final indicator that we discuss of the devaluation of black lives concerns the rates at which uh, black men are killed by the police relative to the rates at which white men are killed by the police. And black men are killed at three times the rate of white men in each year, implying once again that black lives are worth one third of white lives. Did you want to talk a bit about our beliefs about black prosperity? Yes. Okay. That's a good suggestion. Uh, yeah, there's uh, maybe, maybe you should read this section of the okay. book, but. Uh... Okay. Round two, name something that's not boring. A laundry. Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.